everybody. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church, and I'm so glad you're here. Over the summer, I read Edmund Morris's biography of Thomas Edison. It's difficult to grasp Edison's impact on the world. He was a prolific inventor, of course. In his 84 years, he acquired 1,093 patents. And he invented a diversity of wide innovations, including the phonograph and moving pictures. Um, in fact, here in West Orange, of course, uh, there is a National Historic Site, as I'm sure all of you must surely know, that where Edison's laboratories are, his home is here in Llewellyn Park, uh, and is a National Historic Site. And um, when you're driving on Main Street, and you see that black, strange-looking building there in front of Edison's laboratories, that is the, the, called the Black Mariah, which is an exact replica of the place Edison built and where the first movie in the world was made, right here in West Orange. And uh, this was something that people don't even think about when they think about Thomas Edison, because he is most famous for harnessing energy and conducting electricity through wire in order to get a light bulb to shine. Uh, and he did that and then he spent almost this long trying to figure out how to get the light bulb to not immediately go out, but to actually keep burning. He harnessed energy, uh, turned it uh, into uh, electricity, uh, carried it th through a wire, and lit a light in ultimately most of the developed world in a matter of a few years. He and a few others who were who were trying to create light as well, lit most of the developed world. He was consequently one of the most famous people, if not the most famous person in the world during his lifetime. At the turn of the millennium, Life magazine named him the man of the millennial, meaning that he was, in their view, the most consequential person on the planet in the 1,000 years between 1,000 AD and 2,000 AD. Why? Because he brought light to the world. When Edison died in 1931, uh, Herbert Hoover, President of the United States, called for lights to be turned out for just one minute in select places across the nation. He insisted, however, that all the lights not be torn, uh, turned off such havoc. Folks had gotten used to having light instead of darkness, and he thought there would probably be innumerable deaths if the lights turned out. Um, here's what Morris writes. I'll read a couple paragraphs. It's uh, interesting to me, at least, as Edison lay dying, it was suggested to President Hoover that he order the extinction of all public lights. It was not only inconceivable, it was impossible, though, that America could recapture, even for 60 seconds, the dark that had prevailed in 1847 when Thomas Alva Edison was born. The president emphasized this in a statement dated 20 October Quote, the dependence of the country on electrical current for its life and health is itself a monument to Mr. Edison's genius, acknowledging, however, that there was a universal desire to pay personal respect to the old man as a benefactor of humanity. He called on all private individuals and organizations to put out their lights from 10 to 10.01 Eastern time, and the following evening when Edison would be buried at dusk at Rosedale Cemetery in Montclair, New Jersey. At two minutes before 10, the CBS and NBC radio networks broadcast an advance reminder of Hoover's call. Some stations playing Hayden's setting of the words of Genesis, 
Darkness was upon the face of the deep. All the lights in the White House were doused, including the big globe surrounding Executive Park and large areas of the National Capitol and its suburbs followed suit. In New York Harbor, the torch held by the Statue of Liberty flickered out. On it goes, I'll just read the last little part of this. Chicago skyscrapers lost their sparkle and several high beacons turned off, posing a momentary threat to air traffic. Farms and villages and occluded parts of the country vanished like crystals dissolving in ink. The Pacific Gas and Electric Company company doused all its lights in Northern California. A strange hush obtained over urban areas on the West Coast. Pedestrians came to a halt as streets darkened. Men took off their hats and women bowed their heads. As the man who brought light to the world was buried, the world went dark just for one minute, at least this nation did, in honor of his memory. Well, when I read that, I couldn't help but think about the words of the Apostle John in the opening of his introduction to Jesus. This is a much bigger thing than Edison. Uh, here's what John said as he introduced Jesus. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. He's talking now about Jesus. He describes him as the Word or the Logos, and he was in the beginning with God when darkness covered the face of the earth. But the Logos spoke, and all things were made through him. And apart from him was not one single thing made. When what had been made was in union with him, there was life. And this life was the light of the human race. And this light shines on in the darkness, and the darkness did not put it out. See, Jesus was with God and was God in the beginning, and when he spoke, he created all that was made. His life gave created things, matter, life. And that life turned the lights on for the entire human race. Before he spoke, darkness covered the deep. After he spoke, there was light. He caused the sun to shine, and he brought light to the human heart. Sadly, human choices, not long after the beginning, reintroduced spiritual darkness. So, when the time was right, Jesus was sent to bring his life to humanity and to turn the lights back on. We talked last week about how that one way to think about God is to know that he is the energy that brings life to created matter. In the incarnation, Jesus was the energy of God harnessed in the person of a man to bring light to the world. But darkness did its best to put the light out. Frederick Dale Bruner's translation of John 1, 5, which we just read, lets us know that this light shines on in darkness and the darkness did not put it out. But again, the darkness did try to extinguish the light of the world once and forever. I refer to the crucifixion. The darkness tried to kill him and did. And when he died, Luke's gospel tells us that darkness came over the whole land right in the middle of the day, and the world was dark 
physically for several hours, but the world was then dark for three days spiritually while the body of Jesus laid in a borrowed tomb and his soul descended to Hades and it looked like darkness had put the light out. But in fact, the dying part only lasted three days. The darkness only existed for three days because early one Sunday morning, as you well know, the life force that had energized the universe and all creation in the beginning, the, the, the energy that brought life and light to everything created, re-entered the broken body of Jesus and raised him from the dead. And that's why we can say that the light is still shining. And that's why we can say that the darkness, though it tried, could not put it out. And that's why I can say today that this light shines in and through you and darkness as much as it may try. And there's a lot of darkness in our world. It seems like now more than ever, the darkness cannot put the light out. I want to remind you today as we continue this series called Indestructible Us that Jesus is in the place he is in and we have his life and his light now because of the power of his indestructible life. What do I mean when I talk about his indestructibility? Well, it can be talked about in a lot of ways, but one way John captured by saying, the darkness tried to put the light out, but the light shines on. Last week I told you I became fascinated with this subject several months ago when I read this verse from the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. The writer to the Hebrews is actually making a very large point about how that Jesus has become a high priest after the order of a, of a, of an Old Testament personage uh, called, named Melchizedek. Not going to get into that. I just want to make the, this point that Jesus has become a priest, Hebrews 7, 16, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible light. The, uh, we could also say an inextinguishable light. Okay, he is in the place he is in because, because though he died, he was indestructible and he proved his indestructibility through his resurrection. Another translation says that he's in the place he's in according to the power of an endless life. Another, by the sheer force of resurrection life. I love this idea that Jesus knew that the darkness would try to kill him and that darkness would think it had won, but that he would not be extinguished. John chapter 10, verse 17, I spoke about this at length last week. Jesus said, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And I talked about how that when we understand then when who Jesus is and where Jesus is as a result of his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation, and who he is in us, that we will know that we are indestructible as well that we have eternal life in us now, that the darkness cannot put us out 
And ultimately, this is true regarding the life that we have forever. But the life we have forever should impact everything about our lives now. And I propose that though we live in humility before God and other people, that we have a little swagger as we approach the darkness of this world to say that sometimes it may look like the darkness has won, but the darkness cannot put us out. Sometimes it may look like we've laid our lives down, that we've lost life in some way, but but through the power of Jesus, we'll pick life up again. We are the light that continues to shine in the darkness. See, when we have his life in us, we have the same power in us that made him indestructible. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies. Now, I'm going to talk about how that we need to understand this as present reality, that we have this life now, the life that was in the beginning and spoke the, the universe into existence, the life that Jesus was, the life that re-energized his dead body and brought him forth from the dead, that life, if you believe in Jesus, is in you now. And that matters now. And we should live like we understand this now. And we should be dissatisfied with anything else other than seeing the impact of it in our lives now. So, we said that during this, this, listen, the style of my preaching really during this few weeks is really not preaching. I'm not, we're not constructed typical sermons Though that's good, and I do that at times. But it's kind of more of a teaching. And when I'm in a teaching mode, I will meander a little bit, maybe even a lot. I'm just going to warn you, I'm meandering through this sermon today. And at some point, hopefully before we're done, thank you. To all of you watching online, they're clapping. You may have just went to get another cup of coffee, I understand, but they're clapping. So... So I'll meander my way through, but where I really want to now really dig in with all the rest of this stuff out there that I hopefully recapture at some point before we're finished, is I really want to focus now on Colossians, this letter to the, the, the church in Colossae in the New Testament, because in Colossians we get a, there are a lot of ways to talk about this, but in Colossians we get a particularly powerful insight into how that the indestructible Jesus is the source of indestructible life. And so, you know, uh, over these several months, this third trimester of the year, we're, fo- we're going to focus, and we are focusing on Colossians in the week in teaching, life groups, daily devotionals, spirit, scriptural readings. Always remember that here at the Life Christian Church, we're not just interested in doing one-off events and preaching nice little sermons that you say wow to. We're interested in life-transforming things. And so we always, every trimester, we immerse ourselves in something that we hope that when we pound away at it for several months, it gets in us in a way that's transformative. 
Therefore, we don't just want you here in sermons. We want you in light. We want you in a small group where you're discussing them. We want you to see the daily devotionals. We want you to watch our pastoral team do a live devotional on Facebook on Fridays. All this stuff will conspire to help you actually live the life that's that's in you. All right. So as it concerns Colossians. As it concerns Colossians, just a quick reintroduction again, because I'm getting ready to read a really large chunk of Colossians. Um, I'll briefly say that the Apostle Paul, along with his ministry partner, Timothy, wrote the letter to the Colossians while Paul was in prison in, in, prison in Ephesus in the mid-50s AD. Colossae was one of a network of series in Western Asia, now modern-day Turkey, which included other cities mentioned in the New Testament like Ephesus and Laodicea. It appears the primary reason that Paul wrote to the Colossians was that some strange heresy was being promoted in that young church uh, that had just been planted by a disciple of Paul named Epaphras by a set of mystics. Scholars really have a difficult time completely understanding what was going on here, but this is kind of a summation of the best scholarship I've read. The, 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 it was a sect of mystics, Jewish mystics, uh, who, had, who had become a part of the church and who essentially, when it's all said and done, didn't seem to understand that when they had Jesus, they had everything they were looking for. The, these, these mystics were promoting certain spiritual philosophies, and, and, and it appears some pagan philosophies, and also extreme ascetic practices that they would believe, believe would lead people to ecstatic spiritual experiences that would help them uh, experience the, 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 the mysteries of God. And you hear that a lot in Colossians. The of God that would help them have special spiritual knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And so they were very, on one hand, very strictly following the law of Moses to an extreme and telling everyone else they had to do that. On the other hand, they were, they were practicing ascetic, extreme spiritual disciplines, denying themselves bodily pleasures and talk and saying, it was kind of a pre-Gnosticism, saying that the, the body was actually not good, it was bad, and we should escape it and enter into this mystical kind of thing so that we could experience spirituality. There are scholars who think that this wasn't a specific group of people in Colossians, though most seem to, but that it also could be that Paul was speaking in more general terms to the tendency that commonly arises among people who are hungry for spiritual power to assume extreme religious rules and extreme practices. Regardless, the apostle tells the people they don't need to do that to access spiritual power because Christ is in them and they have access to Jesus. And he writes, essentially, if you really understand who he is and what he has done and that he can be in you, you know that you have all you need for the life and enlightenment that you want. It's all found in Jesus. He is life itself. He turned the lights on in the world and he can turn the lights on for your need for spiritual understanding, wisdom, uh, and uh, knowledge, and, and so on. And so he basically says to the Colossians, focus on knowing Jesus. Now last week, we read and discussed this Christological hymn in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And uh, the, the song that our, our team wrote this week is, is a reflection of that hymn. Today I want to locate that hymn within the larger message of Colossians, and I'm going to read, risk reading, the largest passage probably from Scripture that I ever read in one setting on a Sunday morning. Um, 
But I want to do, I'm, it's very intentional because I want to give you a sense of kind of the flow of this big picture thing that's happening here. And then I'll have just a few minutes at the end to hopefully make some kind of practical application and I won't get to all of it, but, but I'll hopefully say enough that will be helpful for you today. Are you ready? Colossians 1 verse 1. I hope you have your coffee, all you beautiful people watching online. And um, uh, everybody here seems to be awake. I want you to know that. So wake your wife up. Um, all right, Colossians 1, I'll pick it up at verse 3. You ready? I'm going to read for a while. This, by the way, is a series where if you actually have a physical Bible, you know, paper and stuff, you, you might want to bring it on Sundays. I mean, it's just as well, I know, I see many of you, probably most of you right now, looking at your devices, and that's great. It's wonderful. Um, but this is the kind of thing sometimes to see the letter, which this is, it's kind of nice to see it as a whole. Uh, it's helpful anyway. Verse three, Colossians one, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, Paul and Timothy write, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the, and I hope to come back to this, the true message of the gospel. The mystics in Colossae were preaching another gospel. Another gospel is, any, is that you need anything more than Jesus to live the life God dreamed for you. But also he talks about the faith and love um, that, uh, that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Another way that this gets translated is stored up for you in heavenly places. In this context, heaven is not a place far away where God lives and to which we go when we die. Um, heaven is understood in, in, in a multi-dimensioned way in the New Testament. And when you, when, when, when you see it in a context like this, heaven has to do with the spiritual realm that exists all around us. Ephesians tells us that Christ sits in heavenly places and that we have been raised with Christ and we sit in heavenly places too. It's talking about our spiritual position. Christ reigns in heavenly places. This is a world that is accessible to us now. And this is very important. I, 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 there is a heaven to which when we die, uh, our souls go and, 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 and wait there, but it's, we're waiting there until the resurrection. And at the resurrection, our souls are, are reunited with our bodies and we are raised from the dead in the same way that Christ was raised from the dead to live in our glorified bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. That's a teaching for another time. This is why I get in trouble. See, I'm meandering. What I, what I want you to focus on is that there is hope stored up for us now in heavenly places, and it's hope that we can access now. This isn't a future thing. This is a now thing. All right, and this is part of what we've heard in the true message of the gospel. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. And I hope to come back to that as well. We continually, I pick up now at verse nine, ask God to fill you with the knowledge. Now he's gonna address this desire, this thing that people are saying that if you do 
these prescribed set of things, you can access the mysterious world of the Spirit and have spiritual wisdom and knowledge and understanding and enlightenment. He's, you're going to hear him. He's going to talk about that a lot now. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every work, growing in the knowledge of God. So you don't just have this unusual wisdom that comes to you through the Spirit, but you also are going to manifest this in the way you live your life every day. You're going to bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the, I love this language, kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then here comes this hymn that was probably sung in churches in the first century. Two stanzas, one begins with verse 15, the other with verse 18. The son, so, 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 so he's saying to them, okay, all this stuff you're looking for, you can find in Jesus. And now you have to kind of see him digress to say, psst, psst, psst. Let me tell you who he is. All right? And here comes this Christological hymn. It's glorious. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, if any of you have heard John preach, You've heard him talk about how that Jesus was in the beginning and how that he was the word and he spoke it all into existence. Paul's saying, this is the song we're singing throughout the Christian church. The son is the image of the invisible God and he's the cause of everything that is made. He is the energy that brought life, created matter, and brought light to the world. Paul's wanting them to understand that when they have Jesus in them, it's not just some nice little thing to talk about. You have the very energy behind the universe in you. And then he goes on to say, not only is he firstborn over creation, but he's the firstborn from among the dead. He is the head of the body, the church, verse uh, 15, uh, 18. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Now he's going to say, just as sure he was, he was the energy behind the creation of the world, now he's the energy behind new creation. Now he's the energy behind the life that caused you to be born again and to become a part of this kingdom of light rescued from the kingdom of darkness. It's not just who he was in the beginning, he says. It's who he is in you now. He was the firstborn among the dead and gives you life. 
For God was pleased, verse 19, to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Again, these pre-Gnostics, uh, mystics were denying the value of the body, whereas Christianity actually celebrates it. See, this is why it's kind of important to understand that we're not going to live forever as disembodied spirits floating around playing harps on clouds. We're going to live forever in our, in our bodies, which are going to be raised from the dead in the same way the body of Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. Therefore, physical bodies actually are good and important and mediums, if you please, of God's energy and light into this world. I actually might preach a little bit if I keep going here. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith. I'll come back to that in a minute. Established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Then he says, I'm a servant of the gospel. I'll pick it up at verse 25. God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is known, but now is, pardon me, disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. I mean, now you kind of got to get the flow of this. What he's saying here is, he's saying, hey guys, all this stuff you want, all this spiritual power, this understanding, this wisdom, this access to mystery, (laughs) the mystery is Christ in you. And when you understand who he is, and that you have access to all he is in your life now. Well, the mystery was both that the Gentiles are being brought into the covenant of Israel. The mystery was that he created a thing called the church. The mystery is that he now indwells individuals with his fullness. And Paul said to this end, I strenuously contend, verse 29, with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I mentioned this last week. I need to mention it again. The word energy there comes from a Greek word, energeia, that is, that, is, that is translated three different ways in the three times it's used in the New Testament. But it's, it's always related to the power. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20 is one, where it talks about the power, this word energia, the same word as energy here. Um, he talks about the power that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Get this. The power God exerted, the energy of God, The energy behind the creation of the universe was now exerted to raise Christ from the dead. And Paul said, by the way, the work I'm doing, I'm doing in the energy of God. In other words, I am tapping into that life force as I do my work every day. See, this is where we must get as Christians to where we understand, we believe, we act like, we expect that Jesus 
in all of his glory is really living in us and through us and shining his light into the darkness through us. And then I'll pick it up. They're clapping. They're clapping. And then I'll pick it up. Chapter 2, verse 2, that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. He's saying it wasn't just a one-time prayer. This is a daily reality in which you are tapping every day, just as you receive Jesus, live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See that no one takes you cap captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. He's talking about adherence to the law, and he's talking about some of these, it seems, pagan philosophies that were being taught about how to access mystical spiritual powers. He says, don't do that, for in Christ... Verse nine, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So in Christ, all the fullness of God lived bodily. In us, we've been brought to fullness. It doesn't mean that we, obviously we're not God. Jesus was God in the flesh, but it's like God out of his endless supply of energy conducts energy, if you please, into us to the measure that we need it so that we have fullness in Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness lives in the bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That word working is that word energia again. Working is, it's, so when we are baptized, he says, with faith, in the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, we are then raised to new life. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's talking about the cross now. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Everything that keeps you from God, it's been dealt with. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, which is also to say that if you have Christ in you, you have the power that he had over the evil forces of darkness, and you should expect to live above darkness. All right, I'll finish the reading there. Great job listening to me read that long passage of Scripture. Let me, let me, let me, this is the way the message organized, uh, is organized. Let me say it this way. No, I'm not going to get to it all today. But let me at least begin to talk about three words then based on this passage that will help you access this indestructible life, to live in this enlightened, light-filled way now. The first word is gospel. I believe that we need to be re-gospeled. Colossians chapter one, verse five, talks about how that we've heard the true message of the gospel. And that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. And the second word we'll get to briefly is grace and truly understood God's grace. He said, you need, I'm focusing now on Colossians 
chapter one, verses six through 12. I'll magnify this section of this passage today. He talks about the true gospel, the true message of the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, Scott McKnight, the brilliant New Testament scholar, wrote this. He said, in short, the gospel of Jesus and the apostles was the announcement that Jesus was Israel's Messiah, the true Lord, who saves by making all things right, and that this Messiah lived, died, was raised and exalted, and will come again to establish the eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. Salvation is entailed in the gospel, but the gospel was first and foremost an announcement about Jesus in which the resurrection played a central role. Last week I mentioned that in short, we could say that the gospel or good news about Jesus is the announcement of his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. And I talked about the fact that we need to see the whole of the gospel in terms of life. How that the dying of Jesus was essential. It was a necessary evil, if you please, a means to end, to an end. If you understand what was accomplished through the dying of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, it was a beautiful thing. But the dying of Jesus was a brief moment in time. He died over a few hours. He was dead for three days. He was raised from the dead and lives forever. It's just important when you think about the gospel to think in terms of life. He was life in the beginning with God. He was re-energized with that life and now lives forever. When we think of the gospel, we think of the life. I want to emphasize this. The life that he had in the beginning, the life the incarnate son lived for 33 years, showing us how to relate with God, okay? The life that he has forever. Life, 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 life. We think about the life. We think about the dying, which was necessary, and the blood of Jesus uh, made a way for us to experience the life of God. We couldn't have it without him paying the penalty for our sins that needed to be paid and so on and so forth. But, but then quickly you come back again to what? Life, resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus. I talked last week, I don't want people to think about poor Jesus, you know, who died on the cross. It's essential to focus on that, to understand that, to appreciate that, to believe in that. But when we think about Jesus, the headline should always be life. And our life in him. And today I want to emphasize again the good news that includes the fact that because of Jesus, of who Jesus is and what he's done, we have the risen and exalted Christ living in us and helping us now. I love the way that Paul says here in Colossians 1.6 that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Uh, he, here's the New Living Translation, Colossians 1.6. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard. I, I want you to, to, to see that the gospel saves us so that we can live. Now, I, 
I'm running out of time, but, but let me make this point. I think it's a very important point. It's a nuanced point, and I hope I don't deal with it so shortly that I confuse somebody. But a lot of times the way the gospel is presented is if you pray this prayer. In fact, I was at a big meeting this week. I heard a pastor, uh, a, a, a friend of mine speak who I admire greatly. And at the end of his talk, he gave the traditional standard invitation, which is good. I'm not being critical of it. I want to talk about what I think is an improper emphasis, though, which is he said at the end, uh, again, I need to be careful. I'm online. Again, there's somebody I respect greatly, but this is the common way people talk about this, and I think the emphasis is wrong. And we can talk about it personally if you're watching today. He actually, this guy does watch sometimes. He's a great guy. If you pray this prayer, if you pray this prayer, when you go to bed tonight, you will know that if you die, you're gonna to go to heaven. That's the thing that's commonly said that I think is a completely wrong emphasis. Here, here, here I think is the emphasis. If you confess your faith in Jesus, you are going to have new life that's gonna cause you to be able to live your life in the way God designed it and partner with him every day to shine his light into a dark world and for you to live the life that God dreams for you. And oh, by the way, when you die, and all of us will. Of course, the eternal life that is now in us will continue. And our souls will go to paradise and we're gonna hang out there in a wonderful place until the resurrection of the dead and we're gonna be re-energized just like Jesus was when he was raised from the dead and reunited, put in our physical bodies again. Even if they were torn apart, they're gonna be reconstituted. They're gonna be, be, be new and better bodies than we ever had before. And we're gonna live in the new heavens and new earth and we're gonna to continue to live out the purpose that God made human beings for in the beginning. But that's the by the way. Because what a lot of people wanna know is what does this matter to me now? What matters to you now is that when you confess your faith in Jesus, you have eternal life in you now. Now, life, the emphasis is ever and always life. Listen, your purpose is not to believe in Jesus so you can die, which is the way a lot of times the gospel is. That's true. I, when I ask people, as I do every once in a while publicly, confess your faith in Jesus, I then we should all pray that whoever just did it has a heart attack and dies right there because that's the purpose. That's the way a lot of people talk about it. You folks understand what I'm saying? I know that sounds kind of brutal. I actually said it br more brutal in the first service and I, I've contained myself a little bit for this dignified crowd. <laughs> a lot of times... When we think about the gospel, we think about justification as we should. Justification means that when I confess my faith in Jesus, I am declared just. I am declared to meet the legal requirements necessary to be able to have a relationship with God the Father. He, it, it, it is just as if I'd never sinned. I've preached about justification 200 zillion times. It's glorious. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's part of the story of what happens when we confess our faith, though, because we also should talk about regeneration. Regeneration has to do with the fact that when you confess your faith in Jesus, you are regenerated. You are born again, and you are not born again so you can survive until you die. You are born again so you can live. 
And again, I'm not saying that, that if next time you hear a, a pastor give an invitation like that, and, and, and it's all good and fine. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying wrong. I'm saying the emphasis is we have too many Christians who don't understand the access that we have now to Christ in us. All the mysteries of God, all the treasures of God, all the wisdom of God, all the knowledge of God, all the understanding. In him, the fullness of the deity dwelled body. And we have been brought to fullness in Christ. We have his life now. Now, Believing the gospel is not a one-time prayer event. This may even help some of you understand why I may not give invitations the same way others will and so on and so forth. Though I will and I do and it's important. Believing the gospel is not a one-time event, guys. It's something we do every day. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Here's what you need to do tomorrow. Don't you, listen, if you've never confessed your faith in Jesus, you need to confess your faith in Jesus. You need to say, I believe Jesus lived for me, died for me, was raised for me, lives in heavenly places now. I believe, I declare him as Lord. I ask Jesus to come into my life. I ask Jesus to give me his life. You need to pray that prayer if you've never prayed that prayer. And then to most of us who prayed that prayer, we need to understand that we have to continue in our faith, in our confession of faith which means you get up tomorrow and you say, I believe in the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. I believe Christ lives in me now. I expect today that his power, the same power that God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is gonna live in me. And as I go face this dark world, the light in me cannot be extinguished. It cannot be put out. Though the rest of the world is negative and critical and divisive and tearing each other apart and hatred and violence and, 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 and all the things that we're facing in this dark world right now, I, I am a light who's gonna shine in the darkness. And it doesn't matter to me what happens today. The darkness is not gonna put the light out. See, you need, if I can be so bold and even point a finger, to believe the gospel when you wake up tomorrow and you need to confess it. And then you need to live in a way where you're tapping into its power, which you're doing today. You're being here, here in teaching. You feel, do, you, do, you, do you feel like you have a better understanding of the gospel now than you did 45 minutes ago, 
Well, if you wouldn't have heard the teaching, see, that's part of how you tap into it. You, you listen to the teaching. You dig into a devotional in the morning. You get together with other people in a small group and you talk and you t- and, 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 and the life. And more and more and more, you learn how to access the life that is in you. When? 